You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. That have a church Bible, we are on page 858, and we're reading today from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject subject to judgment but I tell you everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire so if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you leave your gift there in front of the altar first go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to the court, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the very last penny. This is the, this is the word of the Lord that have a church Bible, we are on page 858, and we are reading today from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister. And then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to the court. Or your adversary will hand you over to the judge. And the judge to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the very last penny. This is the, this is the word of the Lord. So, anger. 
Anger is a, a powerful emotion. Even actually just the mention of anger can have a fairly um, profound effect on us as people. Some of us, even just the, the mention of the word anger or seeing it there on the screen elicits feelings of fear. Perhaps we've been conditioned from a young age to fear anger. For others of us, our main, the emotion that we feel when we hear anger is shame because we have been the perpetrators. I think probably, if we're honest, most of us experience a mixture of both. We've both uh, experienced fear in the face of anger and also caused others to fear because of our anger. Anger is a powerful emotion. It's a bit like fire. Fire can cast light on darkness and and expose wickedness, and it can also consume and destroy and devastate. Anger is a bit like that. You can see anger being used in the service of righteousness in Jesus' own life. Later on in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew will describe for us the event where Jesus storms the temple, turns over tables, ejects moneylenders. Matthew 21, Jesus went into the temple and throughout all those buying and selling, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, it is written... My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. He was angry. It was a righteous anger. Zeal for your house has consumed me. Paul instructs Christians everywhere to be angry and do not sin. To be angry at injustice, unrighteousness is a godly thing. It's a the, the, the use of fire to expose darkness. In my experience, anger can also be something that um, is a, a, a way of protecting oneself. I've, I've experienced anger as kind of a helpful antidote to grief. I don't know if you can relate to this. It's a little bit complex, but um, I remember in, uh, in primary school, I used to cry all the time. I was trying to reassure, reassure my boy Judah this week because he didn't want to go to school and he was saying, you don't understand what it's like for me. Uh, and I was able to say, actually, I really do. I hated going to school every single day, particularly after my mum had died, because I would every single day find myself crying in the classroom, and I hated it. I remember in grade four, eventually the teacher just lost her temper and got angry with me and said, why don't you just stop crying for once? I would would then, my, my next kind of way of dealing with it was just to ask her to go to the toilet like multiple times through the day so that I could just go and cry and get it out and come back to class and not get in trouble for it. What I found was that if I could get angry, and I didn't figure this out, 
This is not premeditated. It's just a function of anger to protect ourselves. I found that anger was a really good antidote for grief. That if I wanted to stop crying, all I had to do was get angry about something. can have a useful kind of utility in our lives. That kind of thing works well in the short term and then tends to turn a little bit toxic in the long term. Anger can have multiple uses, some of them good, some of them effective, many of them very bad. Anger can be a fire that consumes and destroys and defaces. That's what Jesus is going to address in this teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to address anger as evil, anger as sin, anger as destructive force. So remember last week, um, I said to you that, that that passage we looked at was like the introduction, the really absolutely necessary foundation for the next, well, what will be five sermons, where we're going to look at these six different teachings of Jesus, and they're kind of illustrations on how He wants you, if you're a Christian, how He wants you to live and behave. This is about daily, practical life, living as a follower of Jesus. And he's going to address these things according to kind of like six really big, important heart issues that we face as, not just as believers, but as human beings. The first one he's going to address is anger. And all throughout this, he's sort of, he's saying, this is the application of what I said in Matthew 5, In verse 17 to 18, remember this? He said, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. He's saying, until the whole world is renewed in the new heavens and new earth, the Old Testament law stands. None of it disappears. And now he says, here's how this is worked out in your experience. Let me illustrate this through six really practical, real-world examples of life as you are going to encounter it as followers of mine. So here's his methodology. Here's what he's going to do. And again, this is going to be like over five weeks of teaching. He's going to do the same thing at every point. He's going to have this sort of three-point sermon. You thought the Baptist invented that? It wasn't. It was actually Jesus. He he invented the three-point sermon. Here's what he does. He starts with the Old Testament statement. So in our case, do not murder. Then he goes to an, an explanation of the true intent of the law. So he says things like, you heard it said in the Old Testament, but I tell you, this is, the, this is how this is actually should be lived out. And he's both correcting the misapprehension of the law in his day and interpreting truly for us what the Old Testament really means. Okay? So the Old Testament statement, an explanation. He's, he's preaching. This is a sermon. So he's, he's doing an exposition of the Old Testament and then he's going to give us a practical application. Here's how you actually walk this out in your lives as my followers, as as Christians, as followers of Jesus. So that's the pattern. That's what it's going to be the case for the next few weeks. We're going to keep coming back to that pattern. So just have it in the back of your mind. Now, here's the thing. 
Remember, we want at every opportunity put ourselves in the context of the passage that we're looking at. So remember, we're first century Jews. We're sitting up here on the mountain. We've got Jesus, this incredible rabbi. He's been calling disciples to himself. He sat down on the mountain. And now he's about to do something utterly astonishing. Because here's, here's what we expect him to do. As first century Jews, we expect him as a rabbi to, to tell us what all the other rabbis and teachers and prophets and scribes have said about God's word. That's the job of a rabbi. Take what other rabbis, what other teachers, what the prophets have said and just reaffirm them as a call to repentance, as a call to faithfulness. That's not what Jesus does and it shocks them. What Jesus does instead is to say, you've heard it said, Old Testament, but I say to you, I say to you, I'm not just going to quote the prophets, I'm going to tell you what they mean. This was mind-blowing to those people in the first century. I know it's not to us, but we need to get ourselves in that mindset if we're going to kind of feel the weight of what he's saying here. So this is what uh, one of my favorite commentators on this sermon that I've been really leaning on heavily during this series to help me understand this, Jonathan T. Pennington, this is what he says, unlike any other rabbi or prophet, Jesus is not simply repeating the words of God and calling people to repentance. Rather, he is making a bolder claim than this. He is now the arbiter, like he's the judge. He is now the arbiter of the truth of God. No rabbi or prophet would ever say, without getting killed, you have heard it was said, but I say to you, regarding God's revelation. No one has ever spoken like this before. No one has had this kind of approach to revealing God's revelation. Of course, Jesus can do it because He is God. He's revealing Himself. And so, it's not blasphemy because He is, in fact, God Himself. But this is astonishing. This is why at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when we get there, at the end of the, our 20-week run, with the last couple of verses we're going to read are in, in Matthew 7, and verse 28 and 29, this is the response of these people who have been sitting on the mountain now, hearing all he has to say, when Jesus had finished saying these things, finished the sermon, closes the Bible, sits down in the front row. The crowds were astonished at his teaching, because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. They're not astonished because he's given them something new. They're not blown away by this brand new revolutionary thought. The reason they're astonished is because he teaches with authority. He's not just referring to other authorities. He's saying, I am the authority. And they're blown away by it. So we need to have this in mind. This is astonishing teaching. And it's astonishing because of the authority with which Jesus speaks. So now... Let's look at this. Let's look at this first little bit of the passage we're going to see. We'll get to the rest over the next kind of month. We're going to look at his teaching on anger. And we're going to look at these kind of three points. So first of all, you have his uh, Old Testament statement. So Matthew 5, 
21, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be the subject to judgment. Okay? So, where does he get that from? As my kids would say, obvi. It's obvi, all right? He gets it from Exodus 20, 13, which simply says, do not murder. It's one of the big ten. Do not murder. Obvious. The, the second part about being subject to judgment, little less known from Numbers chapter 35, if you do murder, you need to know you are not to accept a ransom for the life of someone who is guilty of murder. He must be put to death. So if you find so, if someone, particularly a rich person or a powerful person, goes and murders someone, they can't just say, oh, how much do I owe you? How much is it for the, for the life of that person that I killed? 10,000? 20,000? 20, right? There, there is no, there's no way of getting out. You, you can't bribe your way out of this. There's no ransom for the life of a person because a person is of absolute, incalculable worth. You can't pay your way out of murder. You kill someone, you must be killed. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. That is death. Okay? So he's opened up the Old Testament. He's given us the reading. That's the reading. Now, his interpretation of it is point two, an explanation of the true intent of the law. So he's saying when God had that written, here's what he had in mind. Verse 22, but I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hell fire. Now, in, in the Western tradition, again, this is not how the people sitting on the mountain would have dealt with what Jesus just said. But in the West, in the post-enlightenment West where we're all about machines and engineering and processes and systems, we want to dis dissect this. This is a very, you don't know that this is how you think, but this is just how you think. Some of you, maybe if you've come from very different cultures, maybe don't have this kind of response, but we, most of us do, okay? So we want to say, okay, now let's just break this down, let's just figure, let's figure out the logic here. So um, angry with someone equals judgment. Uh, insult, that, that's you go to the court, and you fool, you go to hell, okay? And so, and then we want to figure out, well, does that mean that being angry is not as, in, you know, it's not as bad as in, insulting? The, the word insult there is just the, the translation of the Greek word moros, which is where we get moron from, okay? So, you're angry with someone, or if you call someone a moron, or if you say you fool. And so, we then kind of figure out this kind of, uh, this priority of sinfulness, and none of that is, has anything to do with what, how Jesus wants you to take this, all right? So just deprogram that desire you have to want to break this down to the nuts and bolts and the gears and wheels. None of that has anything to do with what he's trying to say. The point is much more simple, much more direct. He's simply trying to say, it's not enough to come before God and say, at least I didn't murder someone. 
It's not enough to read the commandment, do not murder, and then say, all right, all I have to do is not kill someone. He's saying that's not the purpose of the law. This is is so common for us. We try and, like, this is what we'll do. Whenever we feel convicted about being a, a bad person, most of us will instantly try to... Um, we'll, we'll try to, to make a subjective judgment about where I am on the scale of worst person to best. So most of us will make ourselves feel okay again by saying, all right, I'm not Mother Teresa, but I'm not Hitler. I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm okay. Right? That's just, that's, our, that's the economics of making myself feel good about myself. I remember speaking to, to, um, to our good friend Fred, who tragically died. Um, you might remember Fred. Big guy. The biggest guy. Um, my head fit inside one of his hands. And uh, uh, he, he died in, in September 2020. And it was a... It was a bad day. But I remember the first time I met him was out in the foyer. He was sitting down on the floor. He was connected to us through the mainly music um, ministry that we ran. And I was talking to him and just sharing the gospel with him. I knew that he was from a Catholic background. And so I was just trying to like, connect him to, or just trying to understand where is he coming from in terms of understanding the gospel. And at one point when I was talking about um, wh- what it is that Jesus saves us from. Like, why is it that, especially in his experience with a, a crucifix around his neck, why it is that Jesus is on the cross in the first place? His response to me was, at least I haven't murdered anyone. At least I haven't murdered anyone. So he was just doing, this is not a judgment, or anything, he was just doing what we all do. Of course I'm a terrible person. Way, way worse than anyone would ever know. But I haven't murdered anyone. Jesus says, that's not the point of the law. The point of the law is not to get you to a point where you say, well, at least I haven't murdered someone. He said, it's far bigger than that. And it goes not just to your hands and what you do, whether you strangle someone or not, but to your heart. It goes to your heart, and you're going to see this, it's, it's going to hurt, all right? He's going to do this all the way through this sermon. He's going to bring things back to your heart, and that's where you can be exposed. That's where you're vulnerable, and that's where you can be saved. It's not enough simply to say, I haven't murdered anybody. Oh man, it's going to get really bad next week. He's going to talk about adultery and lust. You know that one? You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say anyone who's looked lustfully at somebody has committed adultery in their heart. Ah. I was doing so well until you said that. I was doing so well when I had reduced the commandments of God to simplistic thou shall nots. Jesus said that's not what it's about. That's never what it was about. 
Some people misread Jesus, okay? And I'm pretty sure I've said this myself from the front. I'm, I'm learning all the time. I'm pretty sure I've said something like, yeah, God in the Old Testament, there, you know, it was, you know, he was t- giving us commandments. But then Jesus comes along and jacks it way up higher and makes the bar so high we could never get over it. We think Jesus is doing what um, Rehoboam, King Rehoboam in the Old Testament, he, he decided this is what he'd do. He'd be the hard man king. He'd be the real strict king. And so in 1 Kings, that it, it tells us about what he did. So in chapter 12, the king Rehoboam answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given to by the elders. Bad move. He followed the advice of the young man. Worst move. Uh, and he said, my father made your yoke heavy, I will make it even heavier. My father scourged or scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions, right? So, and some people think that's what Jesus is doing. My father made things hard for you when he said do not murder, I'm going to crank it up. He threatened you with whips, I got whips with scorpions attached to them. That's not actually what Jesus is doing here. He's not saying the Old Testament was heavy, but I just made it way heavier. What Jesus is doing here is simply taking the Old Testament as it is and telling us what it really means. He's saying, here's what you've made the Old Testament to mean, particularly you, Pharisees and scribes. I'm going to tell you what it really means and how you can really apply it to your life. And it's more about heart than hands. He probably didn't say it like that. He would probably say, it's not just about hands, it's about head, heart and hands. Yeah, that's better. This is the true intention of the law. It's always been about the heart, Jesus says. It's always been that way. You can tell this just if you read, and we did that, remember we did that series through the Minor Prophets a couple of years ago, where we did a whole book of the Bible in each sermon? That was crazy. But it gave you a pretty good overview of what the prophets were saying to the people of Israel towards the end of that period before Jesus comes on the scene. They were saying things like in Hosea chapter 6, right? This is what Jesus is saying. God says to his people, I desire faithful love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Can you see what he's saying? I want heart relationship. You guys have reduced this down to do's and do nots. You've reduced this down to I'm sacrificing this animal and I'm doing it at this time and I'm facing this direction and I'm wearing these clothes. God wants heart. This is not something new that Jesus is bringing to the table. He's following in a line of faithful prophets. Jesus is a prophet in continuity with all of God's prophets. Joel chapter 2, this is what he says, and it's just the same echo. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. You guys are tearing your clothes because that is the, the, the form that repentance takes now that you've reduced everything down to simple ritual. And so he says, yeah, tear your clothes. 
that's a good idea. But make it a kind of representation, a physical manifestation of what's going on in your heart. Tear your hearts apart. The law has always been heart deep. In Jesus' day, and God help us, even in our day today, we have reduced things to, to form because it's easier that way. Remember, this is why he says, last chapter, verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. That's because the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was form, no substance. It was tearing clothes and never penetrating the heart. So what's the issue here? What's the, what is the heart issue? If this is what Jesus wants to get to your heart, and right now, you, listen, everyone look at me. This is your opportunity, okay? You, it's a choose-your-own-adventure sermon. Right now, you can do what comes naturally and harden your heart. Whether out of fear or shame, you can just harden it and cruise through the rest of this sermon without anything changing. It's way safer. If you like safety above all else, do that. You don't need to change. You don't need to be convicted. You don't need to be saved. You can just keep on keeping on. All right, so you can do that. That's one, that is one legitimate option for you. Some of us take it every week. Or you can say, God, I believe what you say to me in your word and I want to be made more like your son Jesus who is the definition of the full and flourishing human being. Therefore, show me at the heart level where I need to change. Expose in my heart that which is not in step with my Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. If you do that, you'll be asking the question, what's the issue here? What's really at the heart of all that Jesus wants to say to me about anger? The sin at the heart of both murder, ending someone else's life, taking a knife and ripping it through their throat so they bleed until they die. That issue the sin at the heart of both that action and the name-calling. Moron. You fool. You idiot. The sin at the heart of both of those actions is the sin of vandalism. It's the sin of vandalism. When we kill someone, or when we debase them through name-calling. We are vandalizing the artwork of God. We are defacing the image of God. That's the issue. 
Why is murder bad? Because you are vandalizing God's image. Why is calling someone an idiot bad? Even when they sit in the right lane doing 90Ks an hour on the freeway. Why is it bad to call them a moron? Because you are defacing, you are vandalizing the image of God. Every human being is worth an infinite value because they are made in the image of God. My friend and a friend of the church, Peter Adams, said to me recently when I was sitting with him, feeling a bit down on myself, he said to me, you know, you remind me of someone. I was like, yeah, who? And he said, God. Which sounds a bit blasphemous until you realize that it's true. Every one of us is meant to remind one another of God. We're made in His image. And the full flourishing life is the life that reflects perfectly the image of God. That's why Jesus was the pinnacle of humanity. He perfectly reflected the image of God. So when we kill or when we slander, we vandalize the artwork of God, the image of God. That's what's at stake here. Jesus' brother James pretty much says it perfectly, right? When he's addressing this, he talks about the tongue. He talks about the power of the tongue. In James chapter 3, if you're like me and this is your major sin like it is for me, man, if you want to hear some stories, just go to my family after this service. I am not speaking to you as some kind of fully realized individual calling you to likewise greatness. I'm a terrible sinner who is desperately trying to live more like live more like Jesus, particularly on this point. So James 3 gets me right in the neck, right in the tongue. He says, every kind of animal, bird, reptile and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth, my brothers and sisters. These things should not be this way. Amen? Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my... And then, after church, I'm an idiot got my order wrong at the fish and chip shop. Moron! With our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. That's what the issue is that Jesus is trying to address. It's not enough to say, well, at least I didn't murder anyone. He wants to impress on us the importance of treating people as they were designed to be treated. And so, let's get to the 
the third point, okay? Here's the practical application. Matthew 5, 23 to 26. So, you're a follower of Jesus? If you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother and sister and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary. While you're on the way with him to the court. Your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. He's saying, this is what he's saying, there, is, there are consequences for not living the way that God is calling you to live. It's not enough to treat people dreadfully and then say, well, at least I'm going to church every week and I'm saying the confession that he's telling me to say, so fuel. Do you know that coming to church every week can be a fig leaf that you use to cover up your wickedness? Just think about how sick that is. (laughs) Take a gathering, the intention of which is to glorify God and then turn it into something that's just a veil for your wickedness. Jesus says, and again, this almost sounds blasphemous, except he said it and it's true. Like, he's saying, more important than worship, which is the most important thing in the universe ever, is not coming to worship when you're compromised by your sinfulness. Just imagine what he's saying to them. Remember, we're back, we're, we're back on the mountain. Most of us in the audience are from where Jesus has come from, right? We're from Galilee. It's about three days' walk from Jerusalem. That's where the temple is. That's where we go to offer our sacrifices. So this is what he's saying. If you have spent three days walking to the temple and there bought an animal with your hard-earned money in order to sacrifice it on the altar and you remember at that point that someone has something against you you remember at that point that you called someone a moron fool leave the animal there and go all the way back to where you came from take a week out of your schedule and make it right then you can come all the way back and do it again. That's how important this is. In the Anglican tradition, we've kind of domesticated this and we have the greeting of the peace before communion so that before you come to the table, you can go and say sorry to someone. That is like the lowest bar version of what he's talking about. He's saying take a week. He's saying, do not worship God if you realize 
that someone has found fault with you, that you have hurt someone, that you have vandalized the image of God. That's how important this is. Don't get lost in the weeds about the judge and then the, the penny and the... Just, this is the big idea. And again, this is, he's just saying what God has always said, all right? This is, I, you really have to get this because this is what Jesus is really concerned about. In all the way through this, he's not giving us anything new. This is what God has always said, right? Malachi chapter 1, you remember, same series, Minor Prophets. God says to the people there, I wish one of you would shut the temple doors. Just lock the church up. Turn off the lights. Take down the website. Stop worshipping me. I wish you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Again, from the book of Amos, another minor prophet, he says something similar. God says to them, I hate I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. You guys are getting together. You're all bowing your heads. It's all very solemn. Praise the Lord. I hate it. Why? Because there's rampant injustice and unforgiveness. God cares about relationships. He cares this much. And what we've done is reduce it down to do not murder. Well, I haven't murdered anyone, so tip top. And Jesus says, no. This is about the heart. And he's trying to cut through all of that nonsense to get at the heart, yours and mine. Stop using church to make yourself feel better about all the other stuff. The harsh word, the lustful gaze. This is going to come... Look, listen, if no one turns up next week, I know why. This is hard. But Jesus keeps talking about never entering the kingdom of heaven. He talks about hellfire. He talks about never getting out until you've paid every penny. This is huge, of eternal significance. So, Red Door, what, like, what are we going to do from here? Some of us need to, like, <laughs> we need to accept the kicking that we've been given this morning. The jolt, the, 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 the system reset when it comes to the way that we use our tongue, the way that we speak of other people, not just your mum, 
and not just your loved ones, but everyone made in the image of God, even the black person, even the gay person, even the politician. Every single human being made in God's image. Don't vandalize them. And in the knowledge that every one of us will fail at this, some of us before lunch in the knowledge that all of us will fail, we once again throw ourselves on the mercy of God who is slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. We come before God as we did earlier in the service and we say, Lord Jesus, I have failed to live as you have called me to live. But I desperately want to. Therefore, I repent of my natural inclinations to anger and vandalism. And I turn away from self and follow after you as my Lord, as my God, as my King, as my Christ. I follow you and ask that you would give me grace to walk in your footsteps. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. I'll finish with this. We're then going to stand. We're going to praise God with our mouths, with our tongues that were designed to praise Him. If, however, you're not in a place where you can do that right now, having heard what you've just heard, then please either silently come before God asking for His mercy and grace or come and join some of us in the corner here we're here to pray with you and for you as fellow sinners and strugglers. All that's going to happen after I finish reading this word from Paul to us, which I take it is the summary teaching for us this morning. Red Door Church, let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you, along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Amen.